while we're thinking tonight about what it means to share the gospel with people, what it feels like to be those who are similar to Moses, really, sent by the Lord Jesus Christ to go and make disciples of all nations. Uh, I don't know how you feel about that. Uh, I don't know what your daily or weekly lives show that you believe about that. But certainly from my own experience, I appreciate the opportunity to reflect on it, not just together as a church family tonight, but to bring it before the Lord in prayer. Uh, again, to remind ourselves of what he calls us to do and the way he makes us competent to do it. So let's take some time to pray about our evangelism, shall we? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for giving us such a wonderful gospel to share for the news of Christ's death and resurrection, for the salvation that is on offer uh, to people all over the world, irrespective of age or race or background or circumstance. Your gospel is held out. And in your great plan and design to be held out by your church, your people, the people you gather together by the gospel into local churches to be equipped in order to share it. And Father, we pray you would give us grace as we consider this task. Lord, keep from us those things that would cause us to be careless in that task, forgetful of that task. We want to be those given the seriousness and given the the eternal implications of this gospel that you've given us to share. We want to be those who are obedient to you in love and faithful in the proclamation that you call us to. Father, we thank you for all the ways that in the past you have demonstrated that you have been faithful to your promises and been at work through the formal ways that we evangelize as a church together, the formal ways of sharing this gospel whether it's from uh, Sunday services through pulpit preaching or testimonies, even the content of our songs. We, we want to be those who together remember the gospel in a way that we as Christians not only rejoice in it, but sing it out and speak it out to others so that they might know it too. We thank you for the other formal ways that this gospel has gone out through missions events, through things that we've held, whether special services or special uh, study groups like Christianity Explored and the like. Uh, we reflect that there are groups like this that go on regularly, like weekly in, in the IF and in other groups where your word is opened and this gospel is proclaimed, Lord, please, we, we thank you for using us and employing us in your service in these ways and receive our thanks for all the ways that we have seen you work, for bringing people to faith, for the opportunity to sow the seed of the gospel into people's lives and to see it take root. And thank you for giving us persistence in doing so also. For we know there are times when we have sown the seed of the gospel. It's been cast and it's not fallen on the good soil, it's fallen on hard soil, rocky soil. Father, we pray you would help us even as we face the reality of disappointments in our own evangelism 
to keep going in it. And how we praise you that this uh, call to share the gospel with others is not kept for the formal organized things that we do as a church family. It's for us all to do. Thank you for opportunities to do as the Apostle Paul did in the book of Acts many times, laying out a pattern for us for simple things, meeting with people, engaging with people, uh, eating with people, engaging people's minds, opening up God's words, your words, introducing them to uh, gospel things, to biblical views on the discussions of the day, and certainly to the news of the coming, the living, the dying, the rising, the reigning of Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, we are in the company of people tonight uh, for whom uh, the personal evangelism of a friend has been the means by which they've come to faith. Uh, so many of us in this church family have stories to tell of, of, uh, of situations just like that. Lord, let those stories encourage us. Let the testimonies that we gather together and reflect on together encourage us so that we might keep on speaking and re-speaking the word of God. Our Father, we do pray that um, you would help us to as things open up post-lockdown, uh, to make the most of the opportunities that are afforded us to re-engage with people who, even in their own circumstances, and even in the light of a global pandemic, have come face-to-face -face with mortality again. And even as we hear on the news of uh, the, the, this wave in India causing so many deaths and, again, causing fear among our neighbors, let us speak a word of hope, a word of reality, a word about Christ to our friends, to our family members as we have opportunity. Lord, we, like Moses, often find excuses for not sharing. We find reasons to question your adequacy in making us competent to do it. We question our own abilities our own eloquence, we worry like Moses did about fumbling over these words. How grateful we are that you remind him and us, not only in this passage in Exodus 3 and 4, but throughout your words, that you're the one who gives us your spirit to make us competent to do the things that you would have us do. For in the end, you receive glory and praise. And that is rightly where glory and praise are due. Oh Lord, use us, we pray. We long to see so many more members of our families and our friendship groups and of our city and our nation come into faith. Lord, please use all of us to share this gospel and allow us the privilege and the joy of leading even one person to Christ this year. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Another thing we can do to remind ourselves of the glories of the gospel to enjoy personally and to remind us to share it is to sing songs like this, Christ, our hope in life and death. Let's stand together.
Let's turn our Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians, shall we? And we'll continue uh, working our way through this series. We're in chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 12 tonight. Chapter 2, reading from verse 12. Uh, as you're turning there, let me pray. Our Father, uh, your word is a light to our path, a lamp to, and a lamp to our feet. We praise you that you show us the way to live by opening up these scriptures. They show us Christ. 
Help us to look to him, our saviour, our hope, our example, in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul writes, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent by God. Amen. This is God's word. Well, when I was a kid, uh, the highlight of the summer was the local Galladay. I feel like Edinburgh misses out. There aren't many Galladays around Edinburgh. It's basically a whole community lining the streets for over a mile for, uh, to watch a parade go by. And it was quite something in lots of ways. It was led by the Gala Queen, a wee girl from the community who was dressed up to the hilt like a Disney princess, chosen to get the VIP treatment for the day. Somewhere in the train was a, were VIPs like the local provost in a Jaguar, a Jaguar in up hall, something to see. There were pipe bands and there were brass bands. Uh, there were firemen and floats, Cub Scouts, karate groups, uh, all with buckets full of sweets that they would just chuck out to everybody who was standing there, oldies as well as the young ones. And every once in a while, the parade would stop and you'd get a wee demonstration from the folks that stood in front of you of what their group was about or what their club could do. In short, it was a celebration of the success of the community of Uphall. And I loved it as a kid. I, used to, I looked forward to it. I used to sit there, six or seven-year-old, thinking, wow, this is amazing. I wonder what it would be like to be in the parade at some point. I used to think the same, actually, when I saw football teams celebrating winning the league or a cup. You know, they would parade the trophy that they've just won by going on an open-top bus tour around the city. Uh, it must be incredible to, to be in that bus and celebrate in that way. I mean, there are fans lining the streets. They are singing the praises of these this team, they are eager to see the champions, eager to see the trophy, eager to, by being there and by celebrating, participate in this triumph, to share in the triumph of the team. But imagine being one of the guys in the bus, holding the trophy. That would be something to be part of a parade like that. Now, I'll start with that because I reckon that that's something of what they might have had back in the days when the Roman Empire ruled. History tells us that they had their own 
parades, quite an upgrade from the Galladay, I guess, but they had their own, what it was called a Pompa Triumphalis, a military victory parade. And it was, I, I don't know, it was like a Galladay in that people would line the streets and different people took part, but and there were flag bearers, for example, and banners who would set things off. They would be at the front, and each of their banners would have some kind of display of certain scenes from the battle, the victories that had been uh, won. And then you had trumpeteers, and you had musicians. They were whipping up the crowds. You had then animals coming next, white bulls who were being led to sacrifice to Roman gods. And then you had incense bearers, uh, priests with their censers smoking the place out. And uh, then you had the victorious general wearing all the marks of power, the purple robe, all the regalia, the gold, everything. And he was followed by his army, the champions he commanded. And what were they doing? They were marching in time with great gusto, heavily with their feet, and singing the songs that they sang on the way to battle. And songs in praise of the general, in praise of his achievements. Now, the people of Rome absolutely loved it. In fact, they built scaffolding in the streets for weeks beforehand in order to just get sight of what was going on. And they all wanted to be in it, except, of course, for one particular section that I've left out. In between the incense bearers smoking the place out and the general in all his pomp were the prisoners of war, the conquered. Most of them were marching into slavery to serve the very general or the officials or the soldiers, the senior soldiers who had conquered them. But for some of them, it was actually a death march they would be sacrificed at the end as human sacrifices to the gods of war in Rome along with the bulls. Now, if you wanted to be in the victory parade, that's definitely not the section you would choose to be in. It's not what you aspire to. And yet, in this passage, bizarrely in some way, that's where Paul puts himself in this parade. As someone in slavery to the champion, the general, as someone who is, in, in essence, being led to his own death. Now, to understand why, we need to understand the background and the purpose of this letter, right? Paul, who planted and discipled this church in Corinth, has been under fire. Immorality in the church had been left unchecked by its members and some of the leaders there. The lies of false teachers who had then infiltrated the church were left unchecked. They questioned Paul's apostleship and therefore his gospel. They criticized Paul's ministry and they undermined his authority. And they even maligned Paul's service of God saying, man alive, if he changes his plans as much as he does, he is not exactly led by God, is he? And that's why we've seen Paul so graciously explain why he chose to write instead of visit this Corinthian church again so soon after, well, a painful visit and a severe letter, as we've seen already in this series. It was to spare them and him more grief. 
and give them just that little bit more time to reflect on his words and bring the initial repentance that they've started to show uh, to full repentance. And then here we have verses 12 to 17. We've basically got a transition to a new section that will take us all the way up to chapter 7. And it's a section that reinforces what genuine gospel ministry is and how it's done. And here's why it's important for us. It helps us understand what Christian ministry is so that we can pray for church leaders, understand the job of church leaders, even aspire to church leadership ourselves. And it will help us to appoint future church leaders who will love and lead the flock at Charlotte Chapel for many years to come. But it's also important for us because, as we know from New Testament teaching, we are all, in a sense, Christian ministers. We are all led in service of Christ and all called to be speakers, proclaimers of this gospel. That's why it's important. So let's get into this passage. I've got three points tonight. And the first is this. This passage tells us we are glad captives led by God. Glad captives led by God. Well, let's go back to that Roman procession. Because we need to see from verses 12 to 14a that Paul sees his apostleship as glad captivity to God. Look with me, verse 14. Thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Now, do a little bit of careful reading here. Let's ask the question, who is leading the procession? Look at the text. The answer's in there. It's God himself. God leads the procession, celebrating the victory of the son he sent, Jesus Christ. Christ is, if you like, the champion general. He's the champion who took on the deadliest of our enemies, of Satan, of sin, and death, and praise God, he won. But who is being led in this procession? Who are the captives? Well, it's definitely Paul. Paul, who, as he says in Romans 5.10, was once an enemy of God's, who was, as we see in the book of Acts, captured by Christ, apprehended by him on the Damascus roads, and who is now a slave of God, sold out in joyful service of his Lord and master and friend, Jesus Christ. But is it just Paul being led here? No. And we know that because he's using the plural language of we and us. So who's he referring to? Well, he is referring to those who proclaim the gospel, as we'll see in passages to come in the series, in this section up to chapter 7. He is talking about those who are, if, if you like, new covenant ministers. That'll be, that phrase will become clearer as we go through the next couple of chapters. But in short, Paul has his co-workers in mind. And he's talking about people who are essentially involved in Christian ministry. And it's a super interesting choice of illustration. I mean, when you think about it, when you liken yourself to conquered captives parading their way to slavery or to death, it's a funny illustration. It's a funny choice. Why put yourself there? Well, I think there are two reasons. 
based on our background knowledge of the Corinthian church from 1 Corinthians and from what we see in 2 Corinthians 2. It's to teach the Corinthian church how true apostles, true gospel workers consider themselves. They're humble about their service, not like these super apostles that he will speak of or to in chapters 10 to 13. And secondly, it's to keep the leader humble, to temper anyone's inclination to take credit for something that only God is due credit for. It's to keep before churches the key to this very letter is that God's power is made perfect in weakness. Not expertise, not super competency, but weakness. I love that. Now, captivity doesn't sound very appealing. Not with all the kind of connotations of slavery that we know of. But this captivity, there's a reason why I've called it glad captivity. It's like Paul talks about it in ways that he rejoices. Again, we'll see this as we go through this section. And here's why. The heart of the captor changes the life of the captive. Okay? The heart of the captor changes the life of the captive. Who's the captor? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He's the conquering king. Jesus loves those whose sin he has conquered. He sets his affection on them. We're not subject then to one who hates or who mistreats us. We are subject to someone who truly loves us more than the best love we've ever experienced in this life. And the result in the one who is captive is therefore glad obedience. A captive's obedience isn't driven by fear. It's, it's driven by love, reciprocal love. And it's this love that transforms Paul's service. It's the love of Jesus that transforms the service of everybody involved in vocational gospel ministry. It's, it's what makes gospel workers ready to go where he sends, to do what he says, and do it faithfully despite the difficulties. Toiling over a text. Struggling over grammar. Coming under fire. Criticized in ways you can't feed back on. Carrying the burdens of the church you love. Glad captives is what gospel ministers are. Now a leader's glad captivity to God is actually the thing that serves the church best. I think that's what we see from verses 12 to 13 as we go backwards here. These verses are not passing comments. This isn't just a little travelogue from Paul. They're insights into his ministry, insights into his glad obedience. I mean, these two verses just tell you just how much Paul loves this Corinthian church. After Paul sent his severe letter, he went to Troas to do two things, this text tells us, to preach the gospel. Uh, gospel ministers do gospel ministry wherever they go. And secondly, to rendezvous with Titus. Now, Titus is the one 
who had taken this very important and very severe letter to the Corinthians, and Paul had waited with bated breath to hear how that letter went down. He was so concerned about this church. Now, he didn't find Titus, but what he did find was a door was open for gospel ministry. An open door, of course, as the text says, an open door is a welcoming door. That's a simple illustration for us to understand. Reminds me of my granny's door, actually. My granny's door was always open. You know, it's not like today when our doors are always shut. And even when someone rings the doorbell, you're like, who's that? No one's made an appointment. No, the doors were open. You could come anytime. And that's what was happening here. Paul used the same term of an open door for what was happening with the church in Ephesus to describe the people's receptivity to Christ and to talk about amazing opportunities to do evangelism and to have an impact even beyond Ephesus. It's the kind of thing we'd love to see, the kind of thing we've just prayed for earlier in our service. Why would you leave a place like that where ministry is going so well? Because Paul did. That's what it says. Because he didn't find Titus. His mind had no peace because he was so eager to hear about Corinth's, Corinth's response to his letter. But they were in his heart. His concern for the ongoing faith of those he loved was so important to him that Paul would leave a door of opportunity, of gospel opportunity, to get this news. Now, these super apostles back in Corinth, these false teachers, they undermine Paul. He's not led by God, they said, but Paul underlines this. No, no, I am in fact led by God. He was led by God when he didn't return to Corinth, led by God when he left the open door in Troas. That's why he thanks God in verse 14, who, there's the word, always, always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, it's quite simple. For those who are in vocational ministry, it's about following Paul's example of glad captivity. We are not our own. We were bought at a price. And he saved us from something worse than death and impressed upon us the importance, a desire within us to do ministry in a way where we're just like, I can't do that other job that I've been doing anymore. I just want to do this with my whole life, with everything I've got. Well, this is here. This passage is here to help regulate any ungodly sense of our own importance in doing so, or even prevents us from adopting some kind of unbiblical picture of ministry. It's easy for the world to corrupt it. But it also reminds us of what it means to be in glad service of Jesus Christ and to thank God who always leads us. And no matter what the situation, we can thank him for that privilege. To serve in this way is hard, as Paul says, but it is an honor. And to church members, it's, this passage says, pray for your pastors in this. Choose for your next pastors the kind of people who will love you the way Paul loved Corinth. For he resolved to be what verse 14 says, a pleasing aroma used by God wherever he went. That's the first thing anyway. Gospel workers are glad captives. The second thing, we are 
pleasing aromas used by God. This is verse 14b to 16a. Now in 14 and 15, Paul says that God uses those he's taken into his service to spread a certain smell. God always uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere for we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Smells spread, right? We know this. This is our regular experience. And Paul says here that the smell that those who serve as gospel workers spread has both a kind of a, a vertical and a horizontal diffusion to this kind of aroma. So this aroma goes up. We see we are, he says specifically, to God, the pleasing aroma of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's Old Testament language here. I think the ESV puts it well when it uses the words fragrance and aroma together. You know, search those words up in BibleGateway.com and you'll find yourself in tons of references in the Old Testament law in books like Leviticus, talking about sacrifices. Sacrifices of different sorts back in Old Testament times sent up smoke and God was pleased with those sacrifices, with the smoke going up for the he was pleased for what it represented as the people obeyed the purpose he had for sacrifices at that time. Some of those offerings you read uh, in the Old Testament went up to God in thanks. Others went up uh, with appeals like forgive like the Day of Atonement. Well, the New Testament tells us that Christ became the once for all sacrifice for sin offered to God and God was especially pleased to receive his sacrifice, that blemish-free, sinless, perfect sacrifice of his one and only son as a payment for sin, ours. Praise God. And he was especially delighted in his son's willing love. The son who laid his own life down for people like you and me. Now, when an apostle or a pastor or a gospel worker of some kind says you know, they're going to lay down their life in service of others. As it is, in a way, a living sacrifice. It is, in a way, pleasing to God's ministry that's humble and self-forgetting and lovingly sacrificial, just like Christ is pleasing to God. What a great encouragement that is. That's the vertical direction of this aroma. But this aroma not only goes up, it goes out. It spreads horizontally. And Paul says, we spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere, Paul says. We, apostles and pastors and gospel workers, spread the aroma of him. And how? By spreading the knowledge of him. Clearly, that's what the text says. How do we do that? Through proclamation. Yes, through preaching, like what I'm doing now, but in everyday proclamation, whenever you open up your mouth and declare something of God's word to other people, we are proclaiming him. And that's what Paul goes on to talk about, of course, in verse 17, that 
the goal of genuine gospel workers is to proclaim the word of God and to do it for the glory of God. That's the whole point. Not like these super apostles, you'll get to this, those who, as verse 17 says, peddle it for personal profit. Paul says, we speak as those in Christ. We speak before God with sincerity. We preach Christ crucified, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Underlining for us that you only spread the aroma of Christ insofar as you faithfully teach his word. Pray about this for gospel ministry in Scotland. There are so many different places that you can go to church in this nation and you'll not find us. There are so many places where you can go and look for a church in Scotland and not find one. We want to be those who are equipping and sending out those who will spread the aroma of Christ through faithfully proclaiming the knowledge of God as they open up his words and teach it faithfully. So God uses apostles, pastors, gospel workers to preach the gospel so that the knowledge of Christ goes out. What a privilege it is for us to be able to teach it. You handle God's word as a leader in some way. Are you a leader in time out or in yak or in a small group of some kind? What a privilege you have of spreading the aroma of Christ as you open up God's words. And how important it is to remember this, even as we share the gospel in our evangelism. Maybe like Moses in Exodus 3 and 4, we don't like the sound of this calling of service to God who calls us to do what he calls us to do. And we, like Moses, line up our excuses, questioning our own adequacy, questioning God's judgment. Why would you choose to do this through someone like me? In our weakest moments, saying to him, actually, it'd be much better if you would just send someone else. But God assures all of us, just as he did with Moses, that we are adequate for this task of spreading this aroma of Christ because he makes us so. Like he said to Moses, who made man's mouth? I give you your mouth, so open it. I'll give you help. In essence, he sends Aaron to help him. He says, I'm going to put you in a team, Moses. Well, we've got a team too. It's called the church. We don't do this on our own. We do it together. Now, what is the effect? What is the effect when we spread this aroma of the knowledge of God? The answer is division. Paul says so. He says, for we are to God, verse 15, the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. So both the saved and the perishing smell the same smell, hear the same message. Verse 16, to the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. Wow, it's funny how... The same smell is smelt by different people, isn't it? From petrol to coffee, perfumes, aftershaves, parmesan today. 
Who likes the smell of Parmesan? It's disgusting. <laughs> it's horrible. It smells like sick. Anyway, it's funny how the same smell is smelt by different people. You know, it, it, actually, this, preparing this just reminded me both of my granny and my nana all in the same sermon. Now, she loved her lavender talc, right? She'd puff it on herself. She'd puff it on the sofa. She would just walk about and kind of puff it in the air. And she absolutely loved it, but I couldn't stand it. To her, it was gorgeous. To me, it was vile. She wanted to sit in rooms with that aroma, filling it. I wanted to get out of those rooms. I'd rather go and sit in the kennel with the dog. Well, the same goes for the gospel. The knowledge of God and the gospel of Christ is to some the most delightful fragrance. The knowledge of Christ's death and resurrection and all that's wrapped up in it and all the blessings we receive because he went to that cross, it's just glorious. No one could tell me anything better than the news about Christ's death and resurrection. Nothing will top that. And yet to others, it smells so unbelievably putrid. It's offensive. To those who are saved, it's the aroma that brings life. To those who are perishing, an aroma that brings death. It's like Paul's trying to say, what you smell is what you are. But why such division? Why do people hate it so much. Well, we're going to get into that in chapter 4. But to people who love their own autonomy, the idea of living under the rule of God is an offense. To people who consider themselves generally good, but maybe occasionally bad, the idea of being a sinner worthy of hell is utterly detestable. To people who consider themselves self-sufficient, the idea of needing saved is offensive. To people who love the tight boundaries of rationalism and post-enlightenment thought, the idea of the resurrection is an offense to their intellect. And of course, to those who just downright love sin. The idea of biblical morality. I don't know. Think about it. It's probably most offensive to them, in my opinion. Telling people what they're doing is wrong is probably one of the greatest no-nos in our culture today. It's an issue for those who want to spread the aroma of the gospel, the knowledge of Christ. Well, we who love it need to remember that we didn't used to love it. I didn't used to love it. I, to my shame, loved sin. I had no regard for God or his ways no regard for the offense caused to him or the harm done to other people. Selfish, self-obsessed, hating and being hated and not caring in the slightest until God broke into my life. Not through a pastor preaching from a pulpit. I had grown up, grown up in a Catholic church and I resolved I was never going to go to church ever again. But through the quiet proclamation of a girl who did go to church, the Lord opened my eyes to the glories of the gospel and what once smelt offensive 
by God's grace and through his mercy became unbelievably sweet. And if you're here today or you're watching online and you're not a Christian, if you think it is offensive, tell me why it should be sweet to me then please do get in touch. Let someone that you know is a Christian or get in touch with one of us here at the church. We'd love to talk to you about this and show you why Jesus is glorious and you too should believe. We've all, all who trust in Christ have moved from that place of having it as an offense to hearing the gospel as, and smelling it as something glorious. And we need to remember that when we're called to share this gospel. For other people can experience that transformation too. For God is still at work. Well, who is competent to this? Paul says, we're glad captives led by God, we're pleasing aromas used by God, and lastly, very quickly, we're competent ministers, all of us by God. That's what we see in verses 16 and 17. Paul, so gripped by the seriousness of this task, this job of spreading the gospel and seeing humanity divided into the saved and the perishing, rightly holds up and says, who is equal to such a task? Who's going to do this? To proclaim the gospel in a way where you actually cement someone's eternity for them? Not because you're doing it, but because by virtue of their response to you, they are doing it themselves. It's a serious business. Who's up for preaching a message that impacts on people's forevers? Well, the answer you'd expect Paul to say is no one, but instead he answers, we are. <laughs> it's amazing. We are. We're competent for this. He doesn't say it right here, but he says it in verse 5 of chapter 3. Not that we're competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Of course it does. Where else did we think competency for such a magnificent and weighty task would come from? It comes from him. That's why people would even dare to offer themselves in vocational service when they, like Moses, are keenly aware of their own inadequacies. And many of you should. And it's not only true for gospel workers, it's true for every believer. God enables us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. You don't think you have a mouth to say the things the Lord is the one who makes you competent to speak. You worry about what you're going to say? Well, the Spirit helps you. Do we doubt that he can call to mind the many things that we've heard when we've sat in these services and heard these, the, a few verses like this expounded week after week after week, morning and evening? Give the Lord some credit that he'll bring it to mind when you need it. This isn't a useless task, what I'm doing here. So what's the reason why I keep on doing it? <laughs> and others too. It is building and equipping the saints for ministry in a way that spreads the knowledge of Christ. Don't be put off 
by those who find it offensive. And don't stop if even one person finds it sweet. Keep going. God will be glorified in using each and every one of us to confirm the rightness of his salvation in some, the rightness of his condemnation in others, and will free us to be glad captives led by him. Pleasing aromas used by him and competent ministers equipped by him. Let's pray. Our Father, even working through this, we know it's weighty. It sounds weighty. But how pleased we are to put ourselves to death in glad service of you and to walk forward as those who are used by you and led by you to spread this knowledge of Jesus Christ throughout the whole earth. May you be glorified by making us competent to do that and helping us day by day to remember this. In Jesus' name, amen.